John Paul, welcome to the Razor's Edge. Thanks very much. Very happy to be here. Um, so obviously, as we can, I, I can see on your camera, you're, you're on tour right now, and I guess that you're in the tour bus. So um, I am. In, we are in uh, Newcastle tonight. Yeah. And this is uh, night two of our uh, European tour. Yeah. You played Glasgow last night. How was that? Amazing. Yeah. It's been many been there. Incredible to get back there. And um, our fans in Glasgow are just, man, they were really fired up last night. It felt amazing. Brilliant. Brilliant. So yeah. you've been absent from the UK since 2019, I think, for obvious reasons. But is it good good to be back over here? Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, you know, the UK has always been very good to us, even in the very early days um, when we first started making trips here to Europe. Mm. Um, U UK was the first place that we came to and we were able to sort of build a fan base and yeah. then from here sort of spread it out but this is almost like a home away from home for us. Absolutely. Um, so, so obviously you released Sunrise on Slaughter Beach uh, a couple of weeks ago now. So your 13th album, um, when you release an album, do, do, do you look at how fans and critics view the album or do you not care about that sort of thing? Um, I, to be honest, I don't pay that much attention to, to uh, critics or fans uh, in that regard. And, and I think that comes from really the very earliest days of the band where, um, you, we would release say our very first seven inch pitchfork. And then we followed that up with transnational speedway league and people were immediately saying, Oh, well, you know, they, they, they they went in a different direction. I don't like the new music. Yeah. And so that's sort of happened for many, many albums after that. And I think it's just because, uh, you know, consciously or subconsciously, we we made a slightly different record each time, and I and I yeah. think that kept the fans on their toes. Um, at this point, I, I think the fans who have stuck with us this long expect to hear something different, and I, I think they appreciate us um, trying to push the boundaries as best we can. Um, but to answer your question, no, I I don't really pay that much attention to it, and I, and I think uh, we won't really understand where this record lies in and the the history of clutch records for a few more records we have to have this we have to be able to play these songs out and really see where this record yeah. takes us yeah uh, yeah and you talk about changing up the albums each time i think for me it was very noticeable with psychic warfare that that was a big change in direction then you had the book of bad decisions another change again and now this one it's it it, it is it is that difference every time we um, we try to it's 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 important for us to uh um we need to have fun with this music and we don't want to just keep making the same record again and again. Some bands are really good at doing that. Uh, we are not. So I think we take great pride in, in challenging ourselves and the fans as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in, in some albums you've introduced elements of jazz and saxophones and things like that. And you mixed it up a bit. Yeah. That's what makes it fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was, I was looking through the the liner notes of, of of the latest album yesterday, um, and all four of you are credited for writing all of the music, um, and I think a lot of people often dismiss drummers as just the person making noise in the back of the room. So, um, how much input do you actually have as a drummer in in the in the writing of Clutch songs? Um, well, I, you know, you 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 could argue that as a drummer, I mean. I, I am sort of the engine of the band, so I can easily turn things off or turn things on, depending <laughs> depending on <laughs> where my mindset is. Um, but but um, when we when we collaborate, um, 
I, I try to make my very first drum ideas sort of as mainstream as possible because I don't want to um, influence the riff that's in the room in a way um, until I truly understand what's or I feel like I have an understanding of what's going on. So oftentimes these guys will bring in ideas and I'll just play something that's really pretty straight down the line because I'm really just sort of trying to let that idea develop. Once, once I have an idea of it, if I have, I, you know, if I have a, a suggestion as how to, how to make the thing a little different or to push it in a little different direction, I'll certainly offer that idea up. Um, I sing parts to the guys. Um, I, I play a tiny little bit of mandolin and a little bit of vibraphone. And so from time to time, I'll present ideas to the guys. Um, but it's really very much a collaborative effort. And, and, you know, for, it's, it's, uh, writing a record is time consuming, uh, it can be frustrating, but it's also ultimately just very rewarding. Yeah, yeah, and and obviously you, you've, um, as we saw during lockdown when you were streaming from the Doom Saloon, you've got that space. How 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 good is that space for you guys to come into and and write and things like that? It's amazing. It's it's uh, it's very central to all of our homes. So we were able to gather there uh, really throughout the pandemic. Um, we we did those shows as you discussed, and that was. That was something that kept us um, engaged and focused for those couple years, at least as focused as we could possibly be. <laughs> and then, and then once we saw that there was sort of a light at the end of the tunnel, I think we started getting more serious about actually writing songs. Yeah, um, we had been writing all along, but I, I'll tell you the, the the first batch of stuff that we wrote, I think, was more just of an exercise than than anything else, just just to keep the creative juices flowing and. Very, very little stuff from that first year's worth of writing, I think, ended up on the album. Yeah. Oh, right. So you, you, you completely mixed it up again after that. So what, what would what will happen to that first year's worth of writing that you didn't use? Probably just sit there up on the Dropbox and we'll probably listen to it, you know, when we go back to record some new music again. Uh, once in a great while, we might uh, revisit an old idea. Hmm. But uh, I think more than anything, the, the ideas that sit up there on the Dropbox are... are uh, you know, they're stepping stones. You know, I, I, I think sometimes you have to decide, okay, this is going to be a song and I'm going to follow this song through or this idea, let's complete this idea. And then let's put this idea down yeah. um, and, you know, come back to it later. And, and sometimes those, those things become songs and other times they just become sort of an exercise. And you, you had to go through that process of developing that idea in order to get to the next, yeah. th the next song. Yeah, absolutely. So, so obviously you release everything now through your own label, Weathermaker. Um, what, what benefit does running your own label and, and utilizing that to release your music have for you as a band? The, the greatest benefit is uh, eliminating the friction that, that happened for so long between the band and the record label. There was always, uh, there, there was always uh, a lot of disputes, shall we say. There uh, it was um, the quality of material that we wanted to release or the uh, amount of material or when we wanted to release it or what should be a single or, you know, it, every label that we were on throughout the 90s and, and the early 2000s um, was a little bit different um, in, in the way that we... we uh, 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 worked with the label but but in the end you know the label was there to make money off of your music yeah. and uh, you know even with the best intentions um eventually there's always going to be a breakdown of communication and so so pulling that out of the equation 
is is um, a great relief. Um, I will say though that you know there are as many frustrations as there are uh, benefits. Yeah. Um, you know, when uh, when we release an album and it doesn't come out the right way, if there's a mistake somewhere along the way, we are at the end of the day we are the record label owners, and yeah. the, the fault lies with us. So um, it's still a learning process. We're still we're still uh, figuring out this thing, and it and it changes each time. So. Uh, it keeps us engaged, to be sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose it it takes a benefit of a, a label not looking to make money off you out of that. So there's no like profit draining from yourselves in in that respect. Sure, sure. And you know, I mean, it is a business at the end of the day, and we want it. We need to keep this thing afloat, and we have people we need to pay. Um, but but um, eliminating that the that sort of traditional record label side of it i, I think yeah. definitely frees up to to be a little more creative yeah yeah, yeah so, so sunrise on slaughter beach is is the 13th album over your 30 plus year career so what motivates you to keep going and producing new music 30 years on um well the the, the first answer uh is that we don't want to get real jobs <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and uh so so i you know, I, I think we're, we've reached a point, you know, where we are, we are very appreciative of, of, uh, of the life that we can lead. Um, making music and writing music and playing music is, for me, absolutely the most rewarding profession you could have. So yeah. um, I think we're, we all very much appreciate it. And because of that, I think we put ourselves into it as much as we can. And uh, writing music is just a part of that process. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, so you're probably one of the only bands that I can think of that's had a consistent lineup pretty much from the beginning, and you're, and you're over thirty years in now. So, as you've all known each other since school, effectively, how have you avoided as a band falling out like so other many many bands do? Well, I think probably the at least for me the the main thing was that when we started this band, the intention was it wasn't to become famous. We, you know, we didn't want to play arenas. Uh, we didn't even want to be on the radio. The other bands that were on the radio at that point, um, we thought those bands were corny. Yeah. So we didn't want to make music like that. And we, we, uh, we assumed that if you have reached a certain level of popularity, well, certainly you can't be good anymore because how, why would people like you so much? <laughs> so uh, we, we started this band because we wanted to, we wanted to play cool shows uh, and we wanted to make some good recordings. And that was the beginning and the end of it. Um, here we are 30 years la later, and we still have those same goals in mind. It's sort of still our mission statement. You know, let's let's play some good gigs and let's make some cool recordings. Um, fortunately, we've been able to make a, a profession out of this, and we are very thankful for that. Yeah. But really, the, 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 um, the first thing that sort of made this band a band was just, it was just, just to make music. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you said you you were never looking to play arena shows there. If it came to the point where you're you've got enough ticket sales to force yourself into an arena, would you still shy away from that opportunity? Absolutely not. No, we 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 would welcome it. Um, and and I think that's because we've been able to uh, we've been able to grow this band on our own terms and play the music that we want to play the way that we want to play it. And, you know, at this point, if we can, if we can manage to get enough fans to pack themselves into arena, I, I promise them we will play our asses off and we'll do the very <laughs> best gig. Too. Yeah. And your, your show, your shows are very much no frill show. It is all about the music. So 
if you ever got to that stage in an arena, would you utilise the space anymore or would it still be that straightforward clutch show? I think it'd probably be pretty straightforward. You know, we, we've stayed away from a lot of production. Uh, it was just only recently that we even started bringing lights with us. Yeah. Uh, that's fairly new for us, even in the last few tours. Uh, I don't ever see us, you know, taking on pyro or anything. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not a fan of big drum risers. Uh, firstly, because... Back in the day, I was much fatter than I am now. <laughs> <laughs> Oftentimes, I would get on these drum risers and start playing, and the drum risers would start, they would start rocking. Yeah. Um, that was just because I'd been eating so much after-show pizza. Um, <laughs> but but it, was, it was frustrating because cymbals would start to move around and bass drums would slide away. And so for many years, I stayed away from a riser altogether. Um, I think I actually saw a, a, a video or a, a film of the Rolling Stones um, but I, I don't remember what what venue they were in. There's some some stadium somewhere, and it blew me away that they were playing for seventy thousand people. And here was Charlie Watts on a little six inch drum riser, and all those guys are packed onto a, into a, a small space that could have been a pub. Yeah. Um, and that was pretty inspiring. So I, I think we still subscribe to that sort of yeah. that sort of idea. Yeah, I think that's a good way to go. Um, it, even before the pandemic you were one of the the hardest working bands on the planet so so now with three years worth of dates to catch up on and you're back on the road again now how do you cope both physically and mentally with with life on the tour bus uh, beer helps for sure <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh you know we, we um speaking for myself i i i think about the gig all day so from yeah. the moment i wake up here in my bunk uh, my day is scheduled to ensure that I do the very best gig that I could do. Mm. So, you know, very simply, I wake up in the morning and I'll have a banana and drink a lot of water, have some coffee, go for a walk, yeah. um, you know, try to do some push-ups, um, those kinds of things. And then, and then I'll start practicing and I'll get on the pad and I will, I'll stay on the pad until showtime. Um, and, and I enjoy that for me, it's meditative as, as well as, uh, uh, um, physically engaging, yeah. uh, it keeps my mind on what I'm, what I'm here to do. And, um, and you know, for me, I really enjoy it. I, I, I enjoy spending hours and hours working out of a book called stick control, right. uh, or syncopation or any of these books. Um, it's, it's, uh, for me, just sort of, it's what I do. It's a way of life. And has that approach changed over the years or have you always been that way? Um, no, I've always been, I, I didn't really learn to practice until I was in my twenties. And by that time we'd been on the road for a few tours and I was fortunate enough to meet up with a drum teacher in Maryland where mm -hmm. I grew up. Um, and he taught me a huge amount about not just drums, but being a musician um, and one of the things he, he instilled in me was the, um, was the desire to practice. Yeah. Uh, I remember going to his place one day and, and, and him, him asking me, how old are you now? And I told him, I, th I think at that point I was 24 or 25. He said, you need to start practicing because that window is closing. Hmm. Uh, there, there comes a point where, uh, where, you know, certainly I've still practiced to this day, but those formative years, you know, up until a musician maybe is uh, 30, 35 years old, the, the, you, you really create who you are in that, in that, uh, in, in those years over those gigs. And so he really inspired me. He said, you need to start practicing. 
Um, and, and I've, and I figured it out. It was, it was, you know, practicing is different for everybody. Um, but I, I sort of developed a method then. And, um, I, over the years I've, I've sort of refined that. Um, but I take great pride in it and, and, um, and great enjoyment out of it as well. Yeah. That's brilliant. Um, so, um, it's that time of year when, um, next year's festival lineups are getting announced. And I'm sure contractually you can't tell us what you're going to be doing next year yet. But it, it, are the European festivals in your agenda for 2023? Certainly. Yeah, we'll be coming um, this year. We're going to be coming over in June. Yeah. Uh, we'll hit the sort of the, the front end of the festivals. This past year, uh, we were we kind of hit the later festivals. We were in yeah. uh, in Europe, July and August. Yeah. So this year we'll earlier ones. And that'll be great. I very much look forward to that. Festivals are amazing. There's there's yeah. so much fun to play. Um, obviously, you get to see a lot of bands, and I, th- I think m- maybe one of my favorite parts of it is just running into running into friends that you maybe haven't seen in three, four, five, ten, twenty yeah. years. Sometimes, yeah, pretty it's, amazing. Yeah. yeah, it's the social aspect to get of thirty other bands in the same place at the same time, isn't it? That you don't know. Yeah. There's some there's some great camaraderie there, and then especially after the pandemic, I think everybody has a greater appreciation for it. Yeah. Um, certainly, the you know the bands do, um, but but I feel like the fans do as well. I, I feel just an overall sort of um, uh, appreciation for what for, for this thing that we have. It's very fragile. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you said you're coming over in June, so we can take a hint from that at least of what sort of festivals you'll be playing next year. Um, you could. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but every year when festival lineups are getting announced, there's two festivals in the UK whose fans are always calling for Clutch to play. And that's um, unfortunately, it's the August festivals of Stone Dead and Bloodstock. So are either of those festivals on your radar at all? Um, I don't think we've ever done either of those festivals. No, and um, if, if they are, I haven't heard about it. Okay, so so what what are the internet rumors that goes around every year when when specifically when Bloodstock is um, suggested is that um, you as a band shy away from Bloodstock because it's on the more heavier maybe more extreme end of the spectrum. So is that a, a true rumor? Or is that just internet folklore? No way. We are we are uh, we are thrilled to play with any band, uh, regardless of how heavy they are. You know, we we've. Uh, we have opened for Nickelback. Yeah. We have opened for the Whalers. I'm talking about the reggae band Whalers. Yeah. We've opened for Slayer, uh, uh, Kiss. Yeah. You know, for us, it's it's nothing. Pantera. We did a long tour with those guys. Um, we very early on we realized that that you you don't pick your fan base. You just your fan base picks you, and it's and it's up to you as the band to get in front of an audience regardless of who they're there to see and just get up there and we just kicked ass we just get up there as hard as we can do the best gig that we can do and uh you know a a small portion of that audience is gonna they're gonna hear something there that they like i think probably one of the uh one of the most uh important tours that we did very early on was going out with marilyn manson and this was when marilyn manson was just starting to break Mm. and the booking agent brought uh, this tour idea to us and we really didn't want to do it. We didn't like Manson. Again, it was one of those things. Look, this guy's on the radio. Look at the way, you know, he dresses and his music kind of silly. Why would, why would we want to be associated with that? Yeah. Um, 
but the but the booking agent and our manager at the time was very adamant you know you you should do this tour this is going to be a good opportunity and so we did the tour kind of begrudgingly mm -hmm. uh it didn't take long for us to realize that that um that the the shows that we were playing were, were they were impactful and um sure enough the next year we came to those towns there were tons of Marilyn Manson t-shirts all in the front row. And so you can, you never know, you never know who's going to, who's going to get turned on by the music. It's, it's, uh, it's our job just to get up there and play as best we can. Yeah. And that's good to hear, to be fair. Um, so you've, you've mentioned you're coming back for, for um, the festival run next year, but what else can we expect from clutch in 2023? Uh, we have a couple U S tours planned as well. Um, We'll probably take the first part of the year off. This year's been pretty busy for us, so I suspect we'll take a take a little bit of a break and sort of breathe a little bit. Now, now that sort of feels like things are coming back to normal a little bit, I think we can clear our heads. Um, and then, um, I, I mean, if we're not touring, we're writing. So that's probably going to start happening next year as well. <laughs> Excellent. We get. We get and I, I always look forward to a new Clutch album. So, I'll, me too. I'll, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, John Paul, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Cheers. Thanks very much. It was great talking with you. Thanks for listening. Make sure you keep up to date with future episodes by subscribing to our channels. For more information on this podcast or for all the latest music news, reviews, interviews and more, head over to our website, www.theraziseedge.rocks. <laughs>